So we're looking at the book of Obadiah today. Carl read it to us excellently there. It's a really interesting book. It's in a really uh, strange time in the time of the Minor Prophets. So let me just pull that off. Okay, so it's, it's also the smallest book in the whole of the Old Testament. Like Carl said, it's between Amos and Jonah, but not chronologically. Here's our tube map. So Jonah's over there, and Amos is there, but Obadiah is here. That's really important to get in our heads the time of Obadiah so we understand what's going on with the prophecy. He's a sort of contemporary, really, of Ezekiel, although Ezekiel's over in, been, pa- been taken into Babylon along with Daniel, and Jai's been going through a series on Daniel. So the things that Jai's been talking about in the book of Daniel are around the same time as the book of Obadiah and the book of Ezekiel. So it's sometime after 586 BC, because that stuff there is 586, when the Babylon, Babylonian Empire came in, they conquered the Assyrians, and they took the people from Judah back to Babylon, and they used them there as, as different sorts of things. Daniel did really well out of it. As a really sort of intellectual person from Judah, he became sort of, he was like a prophet for the king, um, although the king didn't really like a lot of the things he had to say. And a lot of them were taken off from Judah and integrated themselves quite comfortably into pagan society. But So that's where we're looking. Just after the Babylonian exile, there are a few people left in Judah, and Obadiah is among them. When I was doing some research on this, the book of Obadiah, I read through a guy called Jared Crispin's written a book called The Panorama of the Bible. And he had some titles, and I've nicked some of his titles because they all began with E. I'm not really good at alliteration, so I've nicked his titles to a, not that that's important, alliteration, but it sometimes helps. But I did add the first one in myself. So, I can think of one word with E in it. The exile, though, is something really important for looking back at Jewish history. When we go back to the time of the exile, the enemies came in, they took the people out of, of Judah... They'd sacked Jerusalem and taken Jerusalem. So what that leaves the Jews with, who are there, it leaves them without a temple, and the temple's vital for the Jews. If they haven't got a temple, they can't take their sacrifices to God, they can't have them sacrificed by the priests, and they can't have their sins forgiven. So if there's no temple, they can't get their right relationship with God sorted in the way that the law says they have to do. They have no priests... And the priests were the mediators between man and God. So not only do they not have a temple, they haven't got any priests to go through the sacrificial working in the temple. And they've got no king that was set up over them to rule them, along with other things. The other thing that they miss out on is their land that God's promised them. They've been taken from the land that God promised, taken hundreds and hundreds of miles away to Babylon, which is now somewhere in Iraq, I think. I can't remember. I showed you it on the map when we did the introduction to the Minor Prophets. I've completely forgotten where it is. Um, but it's over there somewhere. So, like the Jews are in, just in despair, really. They've got no access to God through the temple, no access to God through the priests, no authority from God through the kings, and they've got no land that they've been promised, that they'd have to live in. They thought once they got the land that it would be theirs. Moses took them out of Egypt to the, land, the promised land flowing with milk and honey, that's what they should have had, but they've just lost it to the Babylonians. They feel like they've lost God's blessing. And when Ian was talking through Micah, we get this idea that um, 
the Jews, the people who thought would have been faithful to God because of what they'd done, they say, well, well, they've just they've taken the the you know the northern territory of Israel because they've been more powerful than us. They clearly have better gods than we do. So why don't we just worship their gods? There's this idea that God's let them down because they've not got their land, they've not got their king, they've not got their temple, they've not got their priests. What are they going to do without God? You can imagine it'd be quite quick for them to turn away from God. They didn't have their security in God anymore because it seems like God's left them down. But it's interesting to think, during the exile, what is it God was doing? There's a great bit in the book of Kings, I think it is, where Elijah faces the prophets of Baal and it's the sort of a head-to-head of prophets. So there's one Elijah who is a prophet of God and there's 400 prophets of Baal and they're having a bit of a sort of a bit of a boxing match almost, not literally, metaphorically. And in one side you've got Elijah on his own, the other side the prophets of Baal, and they're saying, right, whose God is God? Basically, so Elijah says, well, you go first, make an altar, slaughter a bull, put it on top, pray to your God, and we'll see if he sends the fire down, lights the altar, burns it all up. So, you know, they're there, they're wailing, they're cutting themselves, they're bawling their eyes out, shouting and shouting and shouting. And when you get read what Elijah does, you think, oh, Sounds a bit petty, but there's only one of him, 400 of his enemies, but he's like, oh, what's your God up to then? Is he, is he just on holiday? Is he asleep? Is he on the toilet? What's he doing? Oh, he's not doing anything for you, is he? But you can imagine that's almost turned on its head here. The Jews have lost everything. What is it that God's up to? They've not got their land or anything. But the thing is, we know that God doesn't sleep. He's not asleep. It's not that he's unaware of what's going on. But firstly, God's discipline in Assyria if we go back to the map very briefly, the Assyrian Empire, the green one, they've been disciplined by God because the Babylonians have come in and taken their empire. So they've lost what they had because they were treating God's people in a way that wasn't right. But also, God disciplines the people of Judah for being unfaithful to him. So not only does he punish Assyria, he punishes Judah by using the Babylonians It's amazing how God in control of everything can use secular nations, pagan nations, to punish his own people when they're unfaithful to him through the Old Testament. So it's just a really odd idea that we get there. So the Jews are in exile. They've been taken uh, from their homeland. They've got no priest, no prophet, no king, nobody really to help them out in the situation that they're in. Let me clarify, they do have some prophets. They've got Obadiah, no Priests, kings, temple. There we go. So, let's move on from exile. Edom. The prophecy in this book is not against Babylon. Now that would be where you'd imagine the prophecy to go. The enemies of God's people have come in, the Babylonians have come in, taken the people from Judah. You'd imagine the prophecy, which is very um, bad things are going to happen to you, to sum it up. You'd imagine that to go straight against the obvious superpower enemy of the day. But it doesn't. It goes to Edom. Now, Edom is not that big. Edom's a territory to the south, the sort of south-east of Israel. And you think, but they're not the people who have come in and taken your land. They're not the people who have sacked the temple. They're not the people who have done away with the priests and the kings. So, so what are you doing? What, why is there an issue here? Well, like a lot of things, it stems back further than this. Edom and Judah stem from these two brothers the two brothers Esau and Jacob who we've been looking at on a Wednesday mornings with the steering team going through things we've been looking at 
Esau and Jacob recently. They're two twins that were born. Esau is hairy, he's a hunter, he's big and strong. A good, big, strapping lad, somebody a bit like me. Really powerful, really, you know, very excellent chap, basically. Jacob reminds me a bit of my brother. Sort of a weedy, stay-at-home type. Um, bit of a wimp, but a bit cunning. Exactly, reminds me of my brother, even though David is older than me and these two are twins. So I've got this idea here of Esau and Jacob, and you think the natural person to pick as the person to be in charge of something is the big, strong, strapping chap, Esau. But God doesn't choose Esau. So when we look at their lines, their family tree, we get some interesting things pop up. So we start out with Esau and Jacob. So Esau's line carries on a bit like this. His grandson is Teman, who's mentioned later on in the prophecy of Obadiah. So that's why I put him in. Click. They grow up and turn into the Edomites. So Esau's descendants are the Edomites. They eventually turn into the Edomians. And from the Edomian line, we get this chap and this dynasty of Herod. Herod, who was in charge at the time when Jesus was born and ordered the destruction of all the boys under two in the area. So that's the sort of line of Esau, um, enemies of God's people throughout. Esau and Jacob had a big falling out, and they sort of stuck to that ever since. So we look at Jacob's line briefly. We've got Jacob's family tree. His, he has 12 sons and their daughter. And in there is a chap called Judah. From Judah, there's tw- the 12 tribes starting with Reuben, going all the way down to Benjamin. Uh, so Judah's there. He's the fourth child to Jacob. From him, we get some of the kings. We don't get all of the kings, but we get King David is in that line. So then there's Solomon, Jeroboam, and Rehoboam, where the kingdom divided and took the north and the south of Israel. So some of the kings are in Jacob's line. And from there, we also get Jesus from the line of Judah and the line of David. We get Jesus coming out there. So there's a sort of tension here, really, between the two families. Let's see which one this takes us to. Great, that's good. So as these two families, well, two families have split from the twin boys and they've grown up and there's always been some animosity there between them. Jacob and Esau get reconciled in the book of Genesis and then they sort of separate and we don't see them coming back together again. And from there on, we have this sort of tension between these two families, these two seeds. The Bible often talks about seeds. and like, There's two seeds in the Bible. There's basically two major families in the Bible. Um, I found out this more recently because I've just written an assignment on it, it's about, it's called Federal Headship, it said, outline Federal Headship in the Bible. So I had to look at this, I had to firstly work out what Federal Headship meant, I didn't know. But basically it says, in the Bible, there are two families. There's the family of Adam, and the family of Jesus. Or, if you look for the seeds, you've got the seed of the woman, in the Garden of Eden, and the seed of Satan, the seed of a serpent. So you get two families, that grow up through the Bible. And there's this idea of the family of Jesus comes through from Jacob and the family of Satan sort of works its way through in his opponents. So in this case, Esau. The weird thing is though, you'd expect if Esau was around today, as he was growing up, clearly his dad was Jacob. And you think if your dad's Jacob, uh, not Jacob, what am I on about? His dad is Isaac. Had to think there. His dad's Isaac. If you thought, if you look back in Jewish history, they're looking back there to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. If your dad and your granddad are going to be the founders of this amazing people that God's going to do, you'd think 
that their sons would be absolute top of the range, you know, uh, Jewish, brilliant lads, wouldn't you? You'd think they'd be perfect. But here, you look at Esau's life, and there's no mention of God coming out of Esau's mouth. He'd had all the exposure. If you put him in today, he'd be the child that was brought up by lovely Christian parents. They prayed for him every day. He came to church. He wore his Sunday best. He went to Sunday school. He knew all the answers. He was always saying, it's Jesus, miss. Every week, he'd know all the answers. He'd grow up. He'd go to Christian school. And he was all involved. He'd go to the youth group. He'd go away on weekends. He'd, and then he grows up. And as soon as he leaves home, he has nothing to do with God. In the book of Hebrews, if I can find that... It tells us a bit about Esau in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. I've just gone past it. I think that's the right verse. Oh, sorry, 15 and 16. So Hebrews 12, 15 and 16. It says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the eldest son. That's the that no one is godless like Esau. Can you imagine that? Son of the patriarch, son of Isaac, grandfather Abraham, all the Jews look up to you, think are amazing. Abraham's grandson, godless, immoral. It's just unbelievable, really, when you think about it. How can somebody who's had all that exposure to God end up the way Esau did? Terribly, basically. So, we've got these two families. We've got Esau and Jacob that have grown up. And there's a massive enmity between the two of them. That through the lines of this enmity, like we saw, you end up with Herod on one side and Jesus on the other. You can't get two people who they wouldn't have got on, would they? Herod tried to have Jesus killed straight away at the beginning. There's this enmity between them. Like we've looked at in Genesis chapter 3. Um, God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. Here we see that prophecy coming true. God working his purposes out in that. But the interesting thing is, when you read this um, prophecy against Edom, the enmity that we've seen is where it says, this is where you should always write the verse number in your notes. It talks about them. Ah, there we go, on verse 11. On that day you stood aloof while a stranger's carried off his wealth. What else did they do? they came and stole the wealth they stood there and they gloated and they boasted over the destruction that was falling on Judah they killed the fugitives it said you stand at the crossroads and you strike you cut off the fugitives the fugitives were fleeing from Judah into like towards Edom to get to safety when the Babylonians came in and attacked but people in the Edomite camp stood there at the crossroads as the fugitives arrived they killed them that's what it talks about. And they didn't help any of the survivors. You can't imagine a more like, godless nation, effectively, can you? This is the result we get from God working his purposes out with Jacob's seed being the seed of the woman that leads to Jesus and Esau being the seed of the devil. And they work, and the Edomites are working against God's people all the way through. It just seems awful that these two brothers had the same upbringing, that had the same opportunity to know God, the same availability to realise the grace of God one of them missed it it just seems awful for poor Esau that he could have missed it after all that exposure that he had well move on to the next E which is this one of example God basically says look I'm going to make an example of you Eden for what you've done 
because of what you've done, because of how you've treated my people, I'm going to make an example of you. So early on in the chapter where you hear that it says, they lived here, you who live in a cleft of the rock, who make your home on the heights, you who say, who can bring me down to the ground, that you soar like the eagle, and you make your nest in the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The The country of Edom, it was a rocky, mountainous land. It was one of those places where if you... If you could like have it as your home and you kept it and you could understand how to work the land, you were safe. It's imagine the cliffs of Dover and they sort of lived in them and they lived among them, these mountainous, rocky cliff faces, really high up. So anybody coming to attack you had to climb the hill. You were always coming down. You had the upper hand. They were hidden away in, inside the rocks. They were really secure. They're a big, strong, secure nation. And basically God says, look, you make your home in the cliffs, you live up in the mountains, you soar on wings like eagles. From there, you make your nest with the stars. From up there, where you put yourself, where you think you're untouchable, where you think you're above everyone else, I will bring you down. You hear that phrase occasionally now, I'm going to get you, I'm going to bring you down. God said it first, that's where it came from. This is God's divine retribution, it's going to be poured out on Eden. And Edom's actions had consequences. There's this idea in here of God saying, what you have done, I'll return to your own head. The way you've treated my people, that's the way that I'm going to treat you. God's not just being vindictive, thinking there's somebody that I can um, yeah, sort of treat awfully just for the sake of it. There's a divine protection of his people and retribution on Edom because of what they've done to his people. And there's this idea as well of Edom's works being like stubble. And he doesn't just mean like stubble on your face. When you harvest a field of corn there's a sort of that much of the sticks left up it's not fun to play in when you're little because you fall over and it's really sharp and really dry it's not very strong but if you set fire to it it just goes because it's really dry something that burns dead easy so when he says it'll be like a fire and like a flame of Jacob that'll rip through the stubble it'll just burn it all up there'll be nothing left God's saying look one day I'm going to burn through all the rubbish of Edom there'll be none of Edom left and Jacob will survive. And then we move on to our next E. And it's the last of these, which is that of exalted. So we've had in our prophet series, from something to something. So this one is from exile to exalted. So the Jews who are in exile, you can, hear, you can imagine them sort of hearing this prophecy and thinking, oh, well, this is all well and good. You're going to go attack the Edomites, going to bring some retribution on them okay but what about us that's fine you're taking on our enemies but we're we're still stuck in where we are when we look at this later on in the book towards the last few verses there's the idea here that God contrasts two mountains he contrasts Mount Esau with Mount Zion he says in Mount Esau that there'll be judgment where Edom is where the people who have been against God they're going to be there and they'll face judgment. But on Mount Zion, if you look in the last verse, it delivers, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion and govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. There's this idea that God is going to bring judgment on, from Mount Esau and he's going to bring deliverance and salvation on Mount Zion. And that's a picture we see throughout a lot of the Bible. God's going to bring up his people on his mountain. He's going to bring down the people from their mountain that stood against him. 
But he says this salvation is not going to be for the people of Edom. It's going to be for God's people. Those people who are in the line of Jacob and not in the line of Esau. Those people who by faith, not by bloodline, are part of God's family. If we just went by bloodline, there's not really any option for anybody but the direct descendants. And that's, you know, that's not brilliant for those people who aren't in the, the, the direct line. But God says, look, if you have faith in me, if you put your faith and your trust in me, you can be adopted into my family and I'll put you in that line. God says, look, that's my line. That's my lineage. They're my people. If I adopt you, I'll put you into that family. And that's what he says. If we have faith in him, God will adopt us and put us into that family. Later on in the New Testament where he talks about God adopting us in the book of Romans, you get a lot of this idea of adoption. Uh, I found out not long ago that in the Roman culture, when the New Testament was written, that if you were adopted as a slave or adopted into somebody's family from being a slave or um, from anything else, your old life legally didn't even exist. So if, say if, uh, if me and Hannah decided to adopt Jai, just uh, we're not planning on it, and it'd be a bit, a bit strange, but if we legally adopted Jai, Jai could then become... Jai Proctor and Jai Patterson Smith would never have existed. That's the way it would have worked. So when God says, I'll adopt you into my family, your old life, legally it doesn't exist. There's nothing there of your old life to be found and brought to you. So God says, look, by faith you can enter into my family. And also we get this picture. We're either in the family that God wants us to be in, in that line of Jacob that leads to Jesus and from there on. Or we can be in the line of Esau, line of Edom, the Edomians and Herod, where we'll not be with God. There's not an option to be halfway in between. God just says, look, there are two families, basically. There's my line, the seed of the woman, or there's the seed of the serpent. You can be in one or the other. And it's by faith or by unbelief. So there we have our trip from exile to exalted. There's not a lot of point in having a trip from exile to exalted if we don't have some sort of application from it. Now you may be thinking, you've said that's the end of the E's, what's going to happen next? We move from the E's to the P's. Look at this, a little bit of an arrow towards our applications. So these are our applications. Um, excellent, everyone knows where we're at. The first one is this. Edom's main sin, early on in the book, is the sin of pride. It says, See, I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home in the heights, you who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? God's saying, Look, you're a people who are proud. You think you've got it all stitched up. You think you're self sufficient. You think you can support yourselves, whatever happens. But God says, That's not the way it works with me. That's not how it is. God doesn't want us to be a people who are proud, people who are puffed up with pride. He wants us to be a people who are humble. And the reason I think that this comes across so strongly in the Bible is because God wants us to put our faith in Jesus. And the reason for that is, if we put our faith in Jesus, we have to be able to say, I can't do it on my own. I'm not able. I can't make it on my own. The reason that Jesus came to earth was so he could come to earth he could live the perfect life that we're called to live but we can't live. He could die the death on the cross that we should die. And if we did die that, we'd have to spend our eternity in hell. But Jesus lived the perfect life, died the perfect death, and he rose again. 
And as Jesus rose again, we knew that God was accepting of his perfect sacrifice. But if we're proud and think we can make it on our own, ultimately, God will say, you can't make it on your own. The only option is for you to know me through Jesus. That's the only way you can do it. And you know Jesus through faith. You put your faith and your trust in him and you know him and I'll adopt you into my family. Saying, being a people who are proud as well means I don't need God. I can sort myself out. I am more capable than God because I can do it on my own. Ultimately, when you look at people, you may think, oh, they've, they've, got, it all, they've got it all sorted out. They've got the biggest house, the biggest car, the biggest dog, the biggest pans. I don't know, whatever it is that you want, and they've got the biggest one of it. Ultimately, them and you, in comparison to God, you're in the same position. We can't make it on our own unless you know Jesus. Then you have so much more than those people that you look at and go, oh, I wish I had their money, I wish I had their car. If we know Jesus, we have so much more because we can say, look, I'm going to be humble. I'm going to say, look, God, I can't make it on my own. Please help me because that is the only way that we can make it through to be with God. When we read through, we get this idea of pride is what got the, the devil kicked out of heaven. He rebelled against God. He wanted some glory for himself. He didn't want to give God the glory that he should have had. And that's what got him kicked out. And that's not what we want. We want to be people who can know God and who can be with him that don't get kicked out of his presence. So the difficult thing is to be able to say, God, I'm sorry. I've been proud. I've thought I can make it on my own. I've thought that I am more than I am. I've thought I could do everything. I thought I could look after myself in every way. What we have to do is we have to come to God and we say, look, I'm sorry. We have to confess our sin of pride and say, I can't do it. I can't, but I know somebody who can, and I know that that somebody is Jesus. If we're going to be faithful to God's call, that's what we have to do. We have to confess our sin of pride and say, please help me, because I can't do it on my own. We have to realise that it's only through Jesus that we can make it to be with God. So that's the first one. The second one is peace. Now, the people that are being written to people that Obadiah, Obadiah is prophesying in the time of, are a people who are not at peace. Okay, they've been attacked by their enemies, their friends and family have been carried off, and they're suffering under the Babylonian Empire. Their ways have been sort of turned from vaguely faithful to really quite unfaithful under the pagan influence of Babylon. But here God says, look, you can know peace you can have peace. And for us it's the same. We can have and we can know peace. But the peace that we can know is not peace from oppression from the outside world like they were suffering. It's not peace from thinking, oh, what bill's going to drop through the door next? It's not thinking, oh, if I wake up too late tomorrow morning, my master might beat me. Or if I don't get to work, I might get fired. That's not the sort of peace he's talking about. He's saying, look, you can have peace. And that peace that you can have is a peace that comes through having your sins forgiven, through trusting God, through being in that relationship with God that says, I can't make it on my own. I'm so thankful that Jesus has done the rest. That if I rest in him, I can find my peace in Jesus. Because all my sins have been taken away, Jesus has dealt with that. And we can live not worried for the rest of our lives, thinking what will happen to us when we die. And then the last one of the P's is this. It's the promise. And if you're God's people at this time, 
you're living in a time of uncertainty, a time of unrest, a time where it's difficult because you've lost your uh, land's gone, your temple's gone, your priests have gone, your kings have gone. But they can live in the light of God's promise through what Obadiah says. Obadiah says, look, deliverers will come to Mount Zion. Deliverers will come to God's people and judgment will fall on the people of Edom. But that may not be now. It will be in the future. He's saying, look, you have to trust in the promise of God. When God says, I'm going to do something, he's going to do it. He's not necessarily going to do it when we want. He's not necessarily going to do it in our lifetime. But he says, this is what I'm going to do. He says, I'll deliver you. He says, I'll save you. I'll bring you out of the land. And I'm sure when we get through later on in the book of Daniel, there's a prophecy that's given. And Daniel basically goes to God and he says, God, you've promised that you'll save your people after all this time. He says, God, you've promised this. Please come good on your promise. And at the exact time that God says he'd do it, he does it. And it's amazing to see God's people saved in exactly the way he said he would. And the thing for us is we can live a life of peace. We can live our life knowing a sort of Sabbath rest because we're not struggling and toiling against sin anymore. We know that through Jesus our sins can be forgiven. We can live at peace with God. We can have our freedom from sin. We have the promise that God will one day bring us home to be with himself. The the people in Judah knew that one day, whether in their lifetime or in the lifetime of their children or any hundreds of years later, God would bring his people back their land, he'd bring back the temple, and he'd bring back their priests. Ultimately, all those things are fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. We see Jesus being described as the, the perfect temple, the great high priest, and the king. So all those things are fulfilled in Jesus as well. So we've only got a couple of clicks left. And these things are all tied together with the promise of the gospel. They're all strung together neatly with God's idea of the gospel. Because Jesus has done it all, because our sins can be forgiven through the power of Jesus, dying on the cross, taking the punishment we deserve, taking everything that we should have got, all these things we get through the power of the gospel. We can lose our pride because Jesus has done the work. We don't have to work for God to try and like think I'm good enough. Don't we don't have to try and impress God so we can lose our pride, we can gain peace and we can live in the light of God's promises to us because Jesus, in the work of the gospel, has done everything that we would ever need to do that we could never do. So the challenge for us really is are we going to be people who look at this prophecy in the Old Testament, see how it's been fulfilled over time and see the things that are still to come but say, look, I'm going to trust God in all these things. I'm going to say, unlike Edom, God, I want to get rid of my pride. I want to confess my sin of pride. I want to do away with the pride of my life and be faithful to Jesus. And are we going to, in light of that, and say, God, thank you for the forgiveness that you give me. Thank you that I don't need to be bound up by sin anymore. I don't need to beat myself up every time I've done something wrong because Jesus has forgiven me for it. I want to live faithfully, but I don't want to live in a a way that I'm beating myself every time I do something wrong, thinking, oh, I've done it again. And I like, if you're allergic to cats, you get a cat out and you sniff it or you beat yourself with a whip. You don't want to live in that sort of life because that's not a life of freedom that God gives us. God says, look, I've forgiven your sins. Walk faithfully, humbly and love uh, love mercy. If God's forgiven us our sins, if we make mistakes, God forgives us the sins that we make mistakes with. 
He wants us to live a life of peace with him. And he wants us to live a life of peace with him, looking forward to the promises that he's made. That he'll one day save us from this world and he'll take us to be with him when he restores this world and brings it all back to how it was in the beginning. So that is the challenge. Can we live a life free from pride by confessing our sin? Can we live peacefully by trusting in Jesus? And can we live in the promises God's given us? I'll quickly link back to the video. Edom were the bad winners. Edom weren't even the people conquering. Edom were the people stood on the sidelines when the Babylonians came in and took all the people from Judah. They sort of came in and kicked Judah while it was down. They nicked bits that their people had left. They killed the people that were trying to escape. They were just bad winners. They hadn't even done any work. They came in and nicked all the bits that were left. God doesn't want us to be like that. He wants to be people who trust in him for everything and not trust in our own ability, in our own pride and where we are. He wants us to be people who are faithful to him, who are humble, and you do what he wants us to do.